1 John chapter 1 verse 5 into 1 John chapter 2 that uh, John is making a kind of basic statement as to how we come into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the Father, fellowship with the Father and fellowship with the Son. And the first thing is to, to grasp hold of who we're having fellowship with. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And then the next thing he says is that if we must have a, a true view of God, we must also have a true view of ourselves. And our biggest problem is sin. How, how can we who still have remains of sin, we're not in the kingdom of sin, we're not being ruled over by sin, but uh, sin is still around, so we're not uh, sinless by any means. So if we don't take our own problem seriously, we will not be having fellowship with God. So just as we have to see who God is, we equally have to see who we are. And so he says, if we say that we are having fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we are lying and we are not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So, here, having, having fellowship with God is, is problematic. It's, it's not so easy to have fellowship with God. How, how can people like us, who still have things in us which are displeasing to God, how, how can there be fellowship between people like us and God himself? So, John asks us that, that we should be honest if we pretend to be to be other than what we are if we don't face the, the problem and the difficulty that we are still sinful people, how can we have fellowship with God? And he puts it in three ways. Verse 6 and uh, verse 8 and verse 10, he puts it in three ways. First of all, if we, if we say that we are having fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. In other words, if we say, well, I, I can have fellowship with God, it's all right, I'm... I'm having fellowship with the Lord, my, my sinfulness doesn't matter. If we are not in, if we are in darkness now, if there's things that ought not to be there in our life, but we claim that we are having fellowship with God, well, well then we're deceiving ourselves. We're really making the claim that sin doesn't matter, that, that we can be in, in sin and still be having fellowship with God. And the Gnostics obviously did say that. The Gnostics obviously said we're having fellowship with God. There wasn't any special holiness about them. They were not loving people. They were damaging the church. And yet they were claiming that God was speaking to them. So if we start saying that uh, this, this question is irrelevant, that we can have fellowship with the Lord no matter what state we're in, well, says John, we're, we're deceiving ourselves. We're not telling the truth to ourselves. And uh, we're not having fellowship at all. So you mustn't say that uh, whether you're walking in light or darkness makes no difference. You're having fellowship anyway, no matter what state you're in. No, no you mustn't do that. If you do that, as the Gnostics did, as, as the false teachers did, they, they weren't bothered about sin, as, as we shall see. 
But if you do that, you, you're not having fellowship at all. And then, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, that there's no such thing as sin, that, uh, that really we, we don't have this kind of a problem of, of sinfulness, which many of the false teachers did it, said in the ancient world, and many people say it today. We're in a similar situation today. There are all sorts of things going on where people say, well, nothing sinful with that, nothing sinful with this, with this habit or this, this uh, whatever it is. Or maybe sin is said to be just psychological, or maybe it's just uh, that evolution hasn't uh, totally brought us to where we ought to be. And we're really saying that there's no sin there. We don't have to worry about sin. It's very typical. How many people worry about sin in, in the modern world? How many people worry about uh, sinning against God? Well, if you say we have no sin, there's nothing wrong with us, we're good as anybody else, you are not going to be having Fellowship with God, says John. And then verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, there's a difference between verse 8 and verse 10. Verse 8 is saying that there's no sinful in us. Verse 10 is saying, well, yeah, maybe there's sinfulness in us, but we've not actually done anything wrong. We've not sinned. So if we deny sin affects fellowship, if we deny we have sin, a sinful nature, if we deny that we've actually done anything that's sinful, that's all going to get in the way of having fellowship with the Lord. And so John is asking us to take two things seriously. He's asking us to take God's holiness seriously, and he's asking to take our own need of, uh, uh, of overcoming or dealing in some way with sin. And so what's the answer? If, if God is so pure and we are so uh, sinful, then, then how, how can we have fellowship with God? And John has only one answer. The only answer is the blood of Jesus Christ. The only thing that makes it possible for sinful people such as we are, the only thing that makes it possible for sinful people to have fellowship with God is the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the Bible's way of talking about the death of Christ. But uh, John doesn't say the death of Christ. He says the blood of Christ. He is referring to the death of Christ, but the, the Bible doesn't just use the word death, it uses the word blood. Why, why is that? Well, the Bible uses the word blood to, to emphasize the nature of the death. It wasn't any, any sort of death. He, Jesus didn't die of old age or malaria or something. He died as a sacrifice. There was, it was a bloody sacrifice. It was blood being shed in, in a violent sort of way. That's why the Bible uses the word blood, not, not just the word death, but the word blood. The blood, the death of Jesus as a sacrifice for sin is, is applied to us. And it's that that cleanses us from all sin and makes fellowship possible. So the only way in which we can have fellowship with God is if we come to God via the cross. If we come to him saying, Lord, we're not trusting in how good we are. We're trusting that Jesus died upon the cross for our sins and we're acknowledging that we're, we're a sinner, we come sort of open and, and acknowledging where we are, then the blood of Christ is applied to us and we have fellowship. Or, or to try to put it very simply, what happens when you confess your sins is you feel clean. When you go to the Lord and you tell him the truth, and you say, Lord, I've done this and I've done that, and, I, and uh, it's because of the way I am in sin did my mother conceive me as David said in Psalm 51, we desire truth in the inward part 
against you and you only. Have I, have I done that which is evil in your sight? And you're going to the Lord in the same way that, that David went to the Lord in Psalm 51. Then the blood of Jesus cleanses. And what, what does that mean in practice? It means you feel clean. It means you feel forgiven. It means your conscience is, is as it were, washed. There are two things, actually, actually three, but I only want to mention two. There are two things that the blood of Christ does. The blood of Christ gives us eternal redemption. Remember Hebrews chapter 9, when Jesus passed through the, through the heavens, taking his own blood, when he went to God presenting his sacrifice for sin, the Bible says he passed through the heavens, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. The first thing the blood of Christ does is it secures eternal redemption. Jesus bought, he paid the price for eternal salvation. And it is eternal salvation. You're not, you're not given temporary salvation. You're not given, you don't borrow salvation. You're not loaned salvation until you backslide or until this or until that. You are given eternal salvation. Your salvation will last forever. It will not be taken back. The blood of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus upon the cross. If you will trust him, if you will trust Jesus, the blood of Jesus Christ gives you salvation, which will last forever. Eternal salvation. But then there's a second thing that the blood of Jesus does. I'm looking at Hebrews at the moment. He goes on to say, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of people with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself to God without blemish, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Can, can you follow that uh, complicated sentence, if the blood of animals cleansed you enough to, uh, to go into the sacrificial system, you're allowed in the camp of Israel, it cleansed your, your flesh, your external position, it, it enabled you to be within the camp. If the blood of sacrifice enabled you to be within the camp of Israel and it sanctified you physically and bodily, how much more would the blood of Christ sanctify not just your position in the camp, but sanctify your conscience. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses your conscience. It makes you feel clean. So there are two things that the blood of Christ does, and the third one in Hebrews 9.16. There are two things at least which the blood of Christ does. It will give you eternal salvation. It brings you into the kingdom of God. It brings you into salvation. It's in the past tense. He entered in, into the holy place, says Hebrews, having secured. It's a, an aorist participle, if you, if you know what that means. A past participle, a, a participle of something which is over and done and accomplished. Having secured, having obtained eternal redemption. And the participle is a past, past, past participle of something which is accomplished and done having obtained eternal redemption. It's done, it's accomplished, it's finished, and it's given to you. And the only thing that needs to happen on your side is you believe in that Saviour Jesus. If you will believe in Jesus, you are given eternal redemption. Unlike the Old Testament, where you were given annual redemption. Under, under the Old Testament, they went into the 
holy place, or the priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year, and he got annual redemption. It lasted one year. It was only symbolic. It wasn't, he didn't really cleanse anybody. It just uh, kept you as uh, legally pure within the camp. That's all it did. It didn't actually cleanse your conscience or save you. But within the sacrificial system, it cleansed your flesh, your position in, in the camp of Israel. And it gave you that redemption for one year. Next year, the Day of Atonement came back again, and you had to do it all over again. It, it didn't, n- nothing they ever did lasted forever. It didn't really achieve anything. And so it had to be all done all over again next, next, next uh, Day of Atonement. And uh, you got another year's worth. You got your redemption, and it was a redemption within the camp, just giving you a kind of legal position. It wasn't dealing with your conscience. You got it year by year. You got annual redemption, like, like uh, renewing your car insurance or something. It was just a kind of annual thing. But if that's what happened under the old covenant, how much more will the blood of Christ, who gave these things through the Holy Spirit, and he gave the, this was real, this was true, this was ultimate, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your consciences? You will get the cleansing of your conscience. And if you ask the question, how do I get that? How do I get this daily cleansing? The blood of Christ will do at least two things for you. It will give you eternal redemption, and the blood of Christ will give you daily cleansing. What do you need to get eternal redemption? Faith in Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are given eternal redemption. What do you need to get the daily cleansing? The answer is walking in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood, we have fellowship, and the blood of Jesus is some cleanses. And there it's a a present tense, it goes on cleansing. It goes on cleansing from all sin. So daily cleansing by the blood of Christ will be given to you if you walk in the light. What does it mean to walk in the light? It means just to accept anything God says. God is light. God reveals. I was saying that light stands for three things. I don't think I finish what I was saying. It stands for holiness. It stands for clarity. You see things when light shines. I think it also stands... <coughs> I think it also stands for happiness. This is something not often mentioned by, by, by modern people. But I think in the Bible, um, light often uh, stands for happiness. You're, you're gloomy and depressed in the night time, and then the day comes and you rejoice when the, when, the, when the sun arises. It's good for man to see the sun, says the book of Ecclesiastes. Light in the Bible speaks of, um, of happiness, and you're, you're rejoicing when, when the sunshine comes. You rejoice when, when after a gloomy night, when you're staying awake, you, you rejoice when the day begins. So light in the Bible stands for holiness, it stands for clarity. You understand there's no stumbling. You're not walking in the darkness, falling over things, uh, as Jesus put it. And I believe it stands for happiness, which is the same, in many ways, is the same thing. The idea that ho- we, we, we tend to contrast holiness with happiness. We tend to think, well, holy people, they're a bit sort of miserable and holiness, that's sort of heavy, and uh, God is holy. It means we can't sort of get through to him we tend to sort of act as though holiness is something a bit miserable. But in the Bible, 
If you're not happy, you're not holy. Now, God, God takes no joy in your being miserable. Happiness is part of holiness. And love is, is the greatest aspect of, of holiness. You're not holy if you don't love people. I think we tend to think of holiness as something sort of heavy and legalistic and narrow and oppressive. The Bible doesn't think that way. In, in the Bible, the, the height of holiness is love and mercy and kindness. You remember how Jesus would talk to the Pharisees. The Pharisees thought they were holy. Pharisees were proud of themselves. You know, I'm not like these sinners. That they, they, they love their, their kind of separateness. Jesus would say to them, go and, what this, go, go and learn what this means. I want mercy and compassion. He would send them back to the, the, the Scriptures and say, well, don't you know what Hosea said about mercy and kindness? You're, you're getting angry because I've healed this person. What, what sort of holiness is that? What kind of holiness is it if you don't like someone being healed? Said Jesus to the Pharisees. So uh, holiness is not some kind of heavy, oppressive Pharisaism. Holiness is, is kindness and mercy and tenderness and love, and it leads to happiness. If, you, if you're not happy, if you're not uh, easy to get on with, well, then you're not holy. Holiness is, is light, is brightness. It's not gloominess. The opposite of light is gloominess. You're not holy if you're gloomy. You're not holy if you're depressed. You're not holy if uh, you're not sure about God. You're doubting whether God really loves you. Nothing holy about that. Holiness is, is love and mercy and tenderness and kindness and assurance. God wants you to be sure of your salvation. Do you, do you think God would be happy if you're not sure whether he's your father? If your children are not sure whether you're really their parents, would you be happy? Surely you want, you want your children to know that, that they're, they're your children and you're their parents and you love them. Surely that's the very essence of a good relationship. Do you think that God is any different? Does God want us to doubt whether he really loves us? And think, well, maybe, maybe we say, maybe we're not. There's nothing holy about that. That's unbelief. That's skepticism. There's nothing holy about it. So, so light is, is bright. It's, it's happiness. It's uh, waking up to the sunshine. Not, not just yes, but uh, it's, waking up, it's waking up and enjoying our world and... Uh, this is the very essence of, of what God is. His happiness, his purity, his cleanliness. He, he's a happy God. God enjoys being God. Did you know that? And the Bible says that God is blessed, and that, that Greek word blessed means happy. The blessed God, the happy God. God is happy at being God. Did you know that? God, God never says, you know, I wish I could be a bit, a bit more sort of different from what I am. God doesn't have that problem. You might have that problem. You might say, well, I wish I was a bit different from what I am. God never has that feeling. He is the blessed God. He's the happy God. He's happy being himself. He doesn't wish he's anything other than what he is. God is happy. He enjoys being God. And, and we, we are to see him that way, and we're to be that way ourselves. We, we, we enjoy ourselves in God. God is light, and, and it includes happiness and, and uh, joyfulness. You, you're not happy when it's dark and gloomy. God is light. Holiness, clarity, honesty, happiness. These are the kind of things that are associated with light in the Bible. And so we are to walk in the light. God makes things clear. He speaks to us. He loves us. He tells us his will. And when he reveals something to us, we go for it. We walk in what he is and what he says to us and what we see in his presence. We walk in the light. Something steady. When, when, you, when you're walking, 
You're not running or dancing or leaping. You're going step by step by step. It is steady. It is purposeful. It's got a direction. You are going somewhere. That's what walking is. And you walk in the light. You act steadily, persistently, obediently, moving in the direction in which God is speaking to you. And if you walk in the lights, if you're honest, if you're open, if you tell things the way they are, then God cleanses us. We have fellowship with him, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. Someone asked me this morning, uh, and uh, she's, not, she's not here, so she's missing the answer. But uh, someone asked me this morning, what if there are things that we have not seen? You, you, you do something in your life and you really, you really don't see it. So, so there's some sin there, but you're not even sort of noticing it or, or realizing it's sin. Do, do, you, do you still have fellowship? I answer, yes. Just because you're having fellowship, it doesn't mean that you're perfect. There may be things that you've not even seen yet. The light's not shone at that particular point. No, no, you don't have to see everything that ever is to be seen, and you'll see more later. Later on, God will speak to you about something else. Later on, God will show you something which you're not seeing at the moment. It's not saying if you see everything there ever is to be seen ever. It's saying if you walk in the light now, if if what God is showing you now, the thing that God is speaking to you now, the thing where he's sort of accusing you a little bit and you've got to confess that you're wrong, if you will walk in the light, and that will involve confessing a few things. What is confessing? It's just acknowledging what God is saying to you. And God says you shouldn't be doing that. You say, yeah, Lord, you're right. It's just uh, acknowledging what God's saying. There's a lot of talk these days about not having to confess your sins. I, I sort of sympathize it with, with it a bit because I think they know, I know where they're coming from. Not right, but I, I have a little sympathy for it because I think it's, it's really coming from confession in the church generally. I mean, traditionally, churches have a confessional or in some, some places and you come and confess your sins. Often you confess your sins to the priest and the Catholic church or the Anglican church. And, uh, and so on. All of that's very oppressive. I, I can understand people uh, wanting to get rid of all of that. that I'm quite happy with, with them getting rid of that sort of stuff. And again, you know, you know the story of Luther. When Luther was a Roman Catholic, he sometimes used to keep the priest for five hours. He would go to the confessional in the, in the Catholic system. He would go to the confession and he would try to think of everything that he had ever done that was wrong. He would go over his whole lifetime trying to fully and totally confess his sins. And he would keep the priest there for hours. When, when, when the Catholic priests at, at uh, Erfurt and, and Wissenberg saw Luther coming, they would say, well, will you take him? I don't, I don't want him. You'll keep me here all day. The priest didn't want, to be, didn't want to be ministering to Luther. He would keep them here all day. And Luther would sometimes keep the priest there for five hours, going over every possible thing he could ever think of since the day he was born. And then at last they would release him, and they would say, well, you're forgiven, it's all right, tell you absolvo. And he would walk away. And as he was walking to his monk's cell, he would remember something, and he would turn around and go back again, because he'd remembered something he'd not told the high priest. And there was this kind of oppressive system of uh, confessing your sins. Uh, and you never found peace. You never thought you'd confessed everything. You always felt there was something out there somewhere which you hadn't mentioned. And so you never had assurance, and you weren't confessing it to God anyway. You were confessing it to some priest. Well, I can, I can understand people wanting to get rid of all of that stuff. 
And uh, the Bible's not saying that you have to sort of haunt yourself and go over everything that you've ever done and try to drag out of your memory everything that maybe you've done. And if I were preaching in Africa, I, w- I would be saying, you don't have to remember what your granddad did or, you, or, or some ancestor who stole somebody's cow a hundred years ago. You don't have to dig into the past. All that stuff is not necessary. No, all that it means is that when God speaks to you, you acknowledge what he's said. You confess it. You come out with this. You say, yeah, this is what God said to me. That's all it is. When God speaks to you about something, you acknowledge what he is saying. When he tells you to do something, you acknowledge this is what he's telling you to do. When he tells you to confess, to, to, to admit to something you shouldn't have done, you, you do it. You admit what he is saying to you. And if you will walk in the light, if you will confess your sins, the blood of Jesus cleanses, goes on cleansing from all sin. So does it mean that you have to see everything now? Could there be some things that in your life which you're not really right, but you've not seen them yet? Yeah, it could be. Does, does that block fellowship? Well, if the Lord hasn't spoken to you about it, Okay, it, it won't affect your fellowship. You have to live up to what you know. You have to live up to what God is saying. You have to live up to what God is speaking to you about and, and walk in the light. That's all you have to do. There may be more light yet to come. All right, leave that with God. God will speak to you about other things further on. But for the moment, you walk in the light that is shining now. You walk in the light of what God is saying now. And if you will live up to what God is saying to you, we're talking about fellowship. We're talking about God speaking to you. And uh, you're only going to have fellowship with the Lord if there's that kind of honesty, if you admit what he's saying, if you allow him to speak to you, if you walk in the light, and that will mean if you admit what God is saying to you, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, to forgive our sins and to cleanse us. You feel clean. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that uh, there's not more to be shown. It doesn't mean that there are not things that one day God will speak to you about. But you're cleansed from the things that right now make you feel guilty. And it doesn't mean that he washes the sinfulness away. The, the idea of some people who are perfectionists, who believe that uh, sin can be sort of eradicated and right wiped out of your very nature, they, like this verse, God will cleanse us. And they take that to, be, to mean that sin is eradicated. But I don't, I don't think it means that. It's just talking about you're feeling guilty. You feel unclean. You feel guilty. You're not having fellowship. But if you'll be open, if you'll be honest, if you'll act upon anything God is saying, God will be faithful to you. He will not abandon you. He'll not give, give up on you. And he'll be just and he'll cleanse you. It, it, it just means cleanse you from the guilt feelings, cleanse you from that barrier there is between you and him. He'll cleanse that away, and your conscience will be, will be washed. You'll feel clean. You'll, you'll know that you've been honest to God. You'll know that God's saying, it's all right, I'm forgiving you, I'm cleansing you. That's all that it is. It's not, it's not eradication of sinfulness. That, that, that's still there. It's not, it's not that... Uh, that there are not more things that could be told to you, there are still other things that God could speak to you about. But for the moment, the, the barrier between you and God is, as it were, healed and washed and cleansed, and you are able to have fellowship with the Lord.
Notice that John says God is faithful and just. You might, if, if you think about it, you might be perplexed that it says faithful and just. Faithful, uh, why doesn't it say God is faithful and merciful? Surely you'd expect it to say God is faithful and he'll have mercy upon you. He's faithful and merciful and he will cleanse you from all sins. He doesn't say faithful and merciful, he says faithful and just. Why does he say that? Well, because Jesus has died for your sins. When you're forgiven, it's an act of justice. It's not, an, it's not just an act of mercy. It is mercy, but it's not just mercy. Jesus has died for your sins. The price has been paid. The punishment has been, has been borne. It's been transferred to Jesus. And the reason why you're being forgiven and cleansed is because Jesus has paid the price. Justice has been done in the person of Jesus. Or I could put it to you like this, if God will not forgive you, it would be unjust. If Jesus has died for your sins and God will not forgive you, it wouldn't be fair. Sins have been punished. How could God not forgive you if, if the Lord Jesus Christ has borne your punishment? So, so John doesn't say God is faithful and merciful. He says God is faithful and he's righteous, he's honest, he's fair, because he's paid the price of sin in the blood of his son, and so he can release you. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we haven't sinned, we're making him a liar and his word is not in us. And then verses 1 and 2 really belong into chapter, chapter 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. He's not encouraging to sin. He's not saying, well, it doesn't matter what you do, you can be forgiven. He's not doing that. He doesn't want you to sin. But um, he, he's just helping you <coughs> if you do. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anybody does sin, we've got this problem that we do fall into sin. If anyone does sin, and, and I like to ask the question, how would you have finished that sentence? If anybody does sin, if you've been writing one John, how would you have finished that sentence? If anybody does sin, he's in trouble. God will be after him. Anybody does sin, let, let it be reported to the elders. Anybody does sin, God might strike him down. How, how would you have finished that sentence? John says, if anybody does sin, we have, there's someone already there for us, he's already there in the heavenly sanctuary. We have someone right now who's advocating our cause, someone who's saying to the Father, Father, you've got to forgive them, you've got to forgive them, because I died for them. We have someone presenting himself, advocating our cause before the Father, appearing before the Father, letting the Father, as it were, see that, that he's died for us, he's, he's presented the sacrifice for our sins. We have someone advocating our cause in the presence of God and presenting the fact that he's died for us. We have an advocate with the Father, and, and it's Jesus Christ the righteous. We, we may not be righteous, we've sinned, we've done something that we ought not to have done. But the one who's there representing us before the Father, he is righteous. He, 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 he presents the righteousness that we ought to have. We ought to be righteous. We ought to be living the godly life. Well, maybe we're not. Maybe we've done something we shouldn't do. Maybe we've sinned or fallen. All right? Well, Jesus is righteous for us. 
He's there advocating our cause, Jesus Christ the righteous, the one who's lived the perfect life, and he's lived that perfect life for us. He's, he's lived the life that we should have lived. That's how we can have fellowship. The reason why we can have fellowship with God is because Jesus has presented to the Father the perfect righteousness that we should have given to the Father. We should not have sinned in the first place. We should be able to present to God a perfect righteousness, but we can't. And so Jesus does it for us. He presents to the Father a perfect righteousness. He says to the Father, well, they've not kept your law, I've kept it for them. They've they've not turned away from sin, I'm hating sin for them. They've they've not loved the Lord with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, I've done this for them. Everything that you ought to, as it were, present to the Father, Jesus has done it for you. He's lived the righteous life for you. And that's why you can still relate to God because you have a substitute. You have someone who's done these things for you. And not only has he lived for you, he's died for you. He's been upon the cross being punished for your sins. And so when you relate to God, you relate to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And what it means is is this. Even God does not forgive us by just forgetting what we did. God doesn't say to us, all right, I'll I'll just pretend you didn't do it, just just forget it, don't worry, I'll just ignore it. No, no, God doesn't forgive sins just by ignoring it and pretending that sin didn't happen. God deals with sin by transferring it to his son and dealing with it in the person of his son. Sin's not been brushed aside. Sin's not been neglected or ignored. Sin has been dealt with. Sin has been punished. Sin has been atoned for. You relate to God and you get the forgiveness of your sins, not by God just saying, well, it's all right, I'll just, I'll just forget my, my sort of standards about these things. No, no, God's not just uh, forgetting that he's God. He is still punishing sin. He's still expressing his holiness. He's still condemning and judging it. But he's not judging it in you. He's judging it in his Son. So you are coming to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's John's way of having fellowship. We realize how holy God is. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We realize how sinful we are. We, we have got sin in us. We have sinned. We know that we can't have fellowship with God unless this is somehow dealt with. But we put our faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. We come to God and say, Lord, I'm not coming because of who I am. I'm coming to you because Jesus has died for me. I'm coming to you because he's lived a righteous life. I'm not praying in my name. I'm praying in his name. Do you pray like that? I do. When I I come to the Lord, I tell him, Lord, I'm, I'm not coming in my name. Don't look at me. Please, please look at Jesus. You come in the name of Jesus and you plead that Jesus has died for you and you're putting your trust in his his blood, his cross. And if you will do that, he will cleanse you. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And then John adds one one bit more. He is the propitiation for our sins. He's the one that swallows up the anger of God against sin. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Why did John say that? 
The secret of Bible study is to ask questions. Always ask questions. Why, why this? Why that? Who's, who's here? What's going on? Ask questions. Why, why did John say that? Not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, John surely added that phrase in order to make, it, make sure that absolutely no one is left out. There's not going to be anybody who says, well, it's not for me because I'm, I'm this, I'm that. He died for every single person in the world. It's a great, it's a great discussion in, in theology, in, in Christian theology. People sometimes debate whether Jesus died for everybody. It's, it's, it has a connection with the doctrine of predestination. I'm not going to go into that. But uh, if everybody doesn't get saved, maybe God didn't intend that everybody got saved. Maybe Jesus only died for the elect. Maybe he only died for those who believe. But you know, there's a problem in that. If Jesus only died for some people, how will you ever know that he died for you? If he died for the elect, he died for the chosen, do you know that you're one of the chosen? If he died for people who have got some special characteristic, do you know that you've got that special characteristic? If Jesus didn't die for everybody, how will you ever know that he died for you? But he did die for everybody. It was Martin Luther, I believe. I never quite know where this quotation comes from. But Martin Luther is, is said to have said these words. It, it, it is said of Luther that Luther once said, I am so grateful that John 3.16 does not say, God so loved Martin Luther. So that if Martin Luther should, should believe, Martin Luther should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm so glad, said Luther, that he does not say that because there might be another Martin Luther and it might not be me. But it says God so loved the world and I know that that means me. Don't hold any doctrine of limited atonement. I plead with you, don't hold any doctrine of limited atonement. Jesus only died for certain people. If you hold that, you will never be able to know that Jesus died for you. And if somebody asks you the question, how do you know Jesus died for you? you? You won't say, because Jesus died for everybody. You won't talk about Jesus. If you don't believe this, you won't talk about Jesus. You will talk about yourself. You'll say, well, it's, it's because I believed, or it's because I repented, or I can see from my life that I've got saved. You will start saying, I know that Jesus died for me because I, you will be talking about yourself. My friend, don't ever base your assurance upon yourself. If you have a, a, a system of assurance where you have to use that word, I, you're in trouble. I know that I'm saved because I, if you're basing your, your salvation, your assurance upon yourself, you're in trouble. My favorite quotation here is from Calvin. Calvin didn't have these problems although many Calvinists do. Calvin himself never had these problems. Calvin said, writing on John 3.16, how can we believe unless we know that an expiation has been made for our sins? Calvin, the great John Calvin said, unless we know right there, just by looking at the cross, that a sacrifice is made for our sins, then how can we believe? If these sins are just for somebody very special, well, how do we know whether we're somebody very special? It's only for the elect, the chosen, or this or that. 
How do we know whether we're one of them? And you can never answer that question. And if you do answer that question, you, you, you talk about something in yourself because I did this or I did that. You talk about yourself and that means your assurance is based upon yourself. My friend, you can't build your assurance upon yourself. Don't, don't hold any such doctrine as that. I believe in the biblical doctrine of predestination, but don't read it into the cross. Don't put predestination into the cross. Jesus died for everybody. Calvin's way of putting it, the great John Calvin, I, I admire him. You know, I have a son called Calvin. <laughs> Calvin. Calvin put it like this, and he was right. Calvin said, the great John Calvin said, that the blood of Christ works in the same way that the tabernacle worked in the Old Testament. You remember how the tabernacle worked in the Old Testament? There was this tent, tabernacle. And it was divided inside into two, and it had an outer courtyard. There was an outer fence and an outer courtyard, and then a tent and two compartments in the tent. And the, sac- the altar of sacrifice was outside the tent. It was uh, in the open courtyard. Anybody could see it. Anybody could see that, that the sacrifice was being made out here. Anybody could bring a sacrifice, a, a lamb or a bull or a goat, for, for his sins. The, the, the open courtyard contained the altar, and anybody, anybody, anybody could come to this open courtyard. But then when you put your face in the animal sacrifice, the high priest took the blood inside. And upon the day of atonement, he sprinkled the blood upon the altar. So the sacrifice out here did not work until it was given to God inside the Holy of Holies. That's the way the blood of Christ works. The sacrifice is for everybody. It doesn't mean that everybody is saved. It doesn't mean everybody is forgiven. But it means it's on offer for everybody. Everybody is being offered the blood of Jesus Christ. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from. You may say, I'm not, I'm not sure whether I'm predestined. I answer, you don't need to know whether you're predestined. Forget it. It's for you no matter who you are. It's for everybody. And so you put your faith in the blood of Jesus, knowing that whether you're specially in God's favor, or whether you're a Jew, or whether you're a Gentile, or whether you're this, or whether you're that, it makes no difference whatsoever. Jesus died for everybody. And if you will put your faith in that blood, then Jesus presents the blood to God. And atonement takes place there, in the, in the heavenly sanctuary, for those who have believed in the blood. It, the blood does not work if I can put it this in this very uh, primitive, simple way, the blood does not work until you believe in it. When you accept the offer, the blood is presented to God. When you accept the offer, the blood avails by being given to the Father. That's the Bible's way of talking about the blood of Christ. It, 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 it's copying the picture, the symbolism of the atonement in the Day of Atonement from ancient Israel. It was Calvin who said that. But, but it's in the Bible, he's just saying it from the Bible. No, no, Jesus dies for everybody. And John is making this point, in, just in case you should, you should feel left out, just in case you should say, well, I'm not one of those Christians, just in case you should say, well, you know, I've, I've lived such a bad life, just in case you say, well, maybe that's just for Jews, just in case you should say, well, maybe that's for the predestined or the elect, just in case you should have any doubts that this is for you, John says, it's not for us only. It is for anybody anywhere in the entire world who put his face in the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is the Bible's teaching. I think sometimes 
theologians get too logical. They, they deduce things and work things out logically. The Bible doctrine is not always logical. Don't try to work things out logically. It doesn't work. The Bible says very clearly that Jesus tasted death for every person. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, having just spoken about the whole world, what is man, what is the entire human race, what is man that you are mindful of him, what is the son of man, any particular individual person, what is the son of, per- of man, one particular person, that you care for him. And he goes on to say, we don't see man being where he ought to be, but we see Jesus. And we see him, because of the suffering of death, exalted because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He's just mentioned, he's just mentioned the entire human race. Now he says he tastes death for everyone. Every single member of the human race, Jesus has died on the cross to atone for that man's sins, that person's sins. It doesn't mean that he's saved, but it means it's there for him. It's been done for him. It's available for him. And if he, if he or she will put faith in that blood, then the blood is given to God and atonement takes place. And it avails, it becomes effective. I'm being a bit theological. Some of you might know, not even know what I'm talking about, but... Uh, I'll take that risk. The blood of Jesus Christ avails in heaven for those who have believed in it. When it's, when it's just there on the cross, it doesn't save you. The blood of Christ doesn't save you automatically. It doesn't save everybody. It's there for everybody. But it has to be applied. It has to be given to God. It has to be made effective. And it's made effective when you believe in Jesus. And so John says... This, if we walk in the light, this blood of Jesus is there. It will give us eternal redemption. It will cleanse our conscience. It will give us fellowship with God. And it's not for ours only. It's for anyone everywhere. It's for the sins of the whole world. Jesus upon the cross took the sins of every single person there's ever been from Adam to the last person who will ever sin the last sin. The entire sins of the human race, from Adam to the last person who ever sins, those entire sins of the world were laid upon Jesus as if Jesus were the sinner who's committed all the sins of the whole world forever, forward and backwards in time. And God punished the sins of the entire human race in the person of Jesus. And if you will believe that and confess that that there are certain sins in your life that need to be forgiven, that blood of Jesus will be applied to you. Your conscience will be cleansed and you'll feel clean. Well, I'm being very theological, but uh, it's good to be doctrinal. It's good to get hold of what is true. And then you try and make it practical to yourself. But get hold of what is true. Jesus died for you. Your sins have already been compensated for. The judgment of your sins has already fallen upon Jesus. And if you will put your face in the cross of Jesus, Jesus speaks to the Father. He advocates your position to the Father. He says, here it is, now apply it to them. Your conscience is cleansed and you feel forgiven.
you feel clean. When I was a teenager, I used to love the idea of uh, the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Remember how in the Old Testament you bring some animal and uh, you put the animal in front of you and you, you, you lean upon the animal. Way of saying, I'm trusting this sacrifice. I'm putting my sins upon this animal. I'm putting these sins upon this thing that's going to be slaughtered for me. And then you gave it to the priest, and you and the priest together, you slaughtered the animal because you put your sins on the animal. And sometimes when I was a teenager, I don't do it so much nowadays, but I used to do it when I was a teenager. I used to say, Jesus, I'm putting that lie on you. Jesus, I'm putting that deceit on you. Jesus, that thing I should have done, I'm putting it on you. I will put it on, the, on, on Jesus' head, one, one sin at a time, till I got rid of all my sins. And that used to give me great peace. You put your sins, you let your sins be on Jesus. It's a bit of an uh, exaggerated way of saying of doing this, but uh, that's what I used to do. It's not such a bad thing. Put your sins on Jesus. Let your sins be on Jesus. Know that he's died for you. Know that he's paid the price for you. If we confess our sins, if we walk in the light and let Jesus be our sacrifice, then he is faithful and, and just because sin's been punished. And he will forgive us our sins and cleanse the guilt away. And we will feel clean in the presence of God. And that's how you have fellowship with God. Have fellowship with God when you feel washed. Have fellowship with God when you feel clean. Have fellowship with God when you know you can pray and God will hear you and he's not holding anything against you. That's how you have fellowship with God. Paul, Paul even puts it like this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he actually puts it like this. He says, if one died for all, then all, the Greek says the all, if one died for all, then the all died. What he means is this, if one person, Jesus, died for all the people of the human race, then the entire position of the human race has changed. The whole human race has died to where it was. Every single member of the human race has had its sins atoned for. The whole human race is in a different position because Jesus has died for it. If one has died for all, then they all have died to their old position. And Paul will say, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God is reconciled to you, you be reconciled to God. On God's side, the reconciliation has been done. On God's side, the price has been paid. On God's side, every single person has been forgiven. But, but it's got to happen on your side as well. God is reconciled to you because Jesus died upon the cross for you. Be you reconciled to God. You lay hold of it. You, you, you come and accept it and believe and confess your sins. And you, you, come, you come to lay hold of what God is offering you in Jesus. God is reconciled to you. Come, says, says another, another parable. Come, for all things are ready. Jesus tells the parable they are to go out into the highways and the byways, and they're to say to everybody everywhere, come, because everything is ready. Come, for all things are ready. Everything has been done for you. All you need to do is to come to it. That's the gospel. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will cleanse us from all 
unrighteousness. And he is talking to Christians. He's not telling Gnostics how to get saved. If any Gnostic happens to be listening, it's all right. You can tell the Gnostic how to get saved. But he's not specially speaking to Gnostics. Those that have gone, they went out from us. The Gnostics are not there anymore. He's not writing to, to people who've left, the heretics who've gone. He's writing to God's people who've been damaged, who've, who've lost some fellowship. They're quarreling, they're arguing. There's lots of sins amongst them. And they need to be cleansed and purified and the whole fellowship needs to be got right. It's to them that he's speaking. If we, if we, the people of God, will confess our sins and walk in the light, we will get our fellowship back. We've lost it for the moment, says John. You're quarreling and arguing and you don't seem to be enjoying the Lord because these heretics have left this kind of overhang. But if we will see who God is, if we will see who we are and not deny anything, not try to say, well, I'm trying to be better, I'll do my best. No, no, don't, don't even do that. Just admit where you are. And if we will walk in the light and confess anything God is saying, we will have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus is applied to us. It goes on, it comes back again and we're washed again. Notice forgiveness is not salvation. Forgiveness is having the quarrel patched up. when When you're unforgiving, when you're unforgiven, you're not lost. God, God does not forgive you. It doesn't mean you're lost. If you don't have any fellowship, it doesn't mean that you're in hell. It just means you're having no friendship with the Lord. There's a quarrel between you. Forgiveness is not getting saved again. Forgiveness is just the fellowship coming back. It's God saying, yeah, it's okay, it's all right, we're friends. That's all it is. That's why the Bible can say, if you won't forgive others, God won't forgive you. It's not saying if you won't forgive others, you can't be saved. It's saying if you will not let other people know that you haven't got anything against them, then why should God let you know that he's not got anything against you? Don't expect God to treat you in a way that's different from the way in which you treat others. You you won't forgive other people, why should God forgive you? You go to others and you just let them know that you've forgiven them. I don't mean that you tell them, don't go someone say, you, you, said, you did this against me, it's all right, I've forgiven you. No, don't, don't do that, don't do that. But just let them know by the way you behave that you're holding nothing against them. Forgive everybody everywhere. Your own forgiveness of other people comes into this. Don't let there be one person in the world that you have not forgiven. There's one person in the world that you are angry with or bitter with. It will damage your fellowship. You'll not be, you'll not be having much fellowship with God. If there's one person that you won't sort of have fellowship with him or her, you're angry with them. If you're angry with somebody and you hold on to that bitterness, you'll find that God will say, well, I'm waiting for you to forgive somebody else before I forgive you. I'm not ready to, but, but I want you to do for others what you want me to do for you. And that unforgiveness will hold up your forgiveness. You won't feel forgiven while you are withholding from others. It's a big thing. I've often, I've often uh, known people to come back to me. I say something like this in public. Maybe next week someone writes me a letter. Uh, and the letter might go like this. Pastor, you know, I've been quarreling with my mother all my life. She treated me so badly, I've never got on with her. I've not spoken to her for 10 years. Last week, I went to see her, and we patched up our quarrel. And God has blessed me so much. I've often had letters like that. 
you, you go and you deal with something and maybe there's been a kind of cold situation there for months or years. You quarrel with your, your mother or your, your twin brother or something and you're, you're, sort of, you're angry with them. You're trying to have fellowship with the Lord and actually you, you don't have much fellowship with the Lord. And one day you forgive that person you're so angry with. You forgive them utterly and totally and completely. And immediately, God begins to bless you. Immediately, you begin to feel the very presence of God. Immediately, you feel forgiven and cleansed. You know that God's pleased with you. You can almost hear God saying, well done, well done. And he's blessing you. He's giving you, he's giving you his fellowship back because you gave somebody your fellowship back. And the great uh, model here, I close with this. The great model here is Joseph. Remember how Joseph was uh, betrayed by his brothers? sold into slavery and suffered so much in Potiphar's house and in the prison of Pharaoh. He suffered so much because of his brothers. And then one day those very brothers who'd sold him into slavery and tried to kill him and get money from him, all these terrible things they did, one day they appear in the courts of Pharaoh looking for food. Twenty years later, they're looking for food. The family back in Israel is starving and they're coming to Egypt for food. And they find that the guy is this guy in charge of all of the food. They don't know it, but it's Joseph, their brother. Joseph, for a while, doesn't reveal who he is. He plays around with them, tries to find out whether they're sorry for what they did. And then one day he can feel that maybe they're really sorry for what they did. And he puts everybody out. He sends all the Egyptians away. doesn't let any kind of servant or worker be around. He puts everybody out of the room. And he says to his brothers, do you know who I am? And they say, well, yeah, you're the, you're the minister in charge of food. No, look at me. Don't you know who I am? I am Joseph. Just, just think what they thought at that moment. The very one they'd killed, they tried to kill him and they'd sold him and suddenly the, the most powerful person in, in the ancient Near East is, the, is their brother whom they treated in that way. I am Joseph, he says to them. And they're sort of trembling in, in terror and fear. And that's no, all right, it's all right. Don't even worry about it. You meant it for evil, but okay, God had his plan. God, God was bringing something good out of it. But here's my question. Why did he put the Egyptians out? Why did he not let anybody be there except himself and his brothers? Well, the answer's obvious. Because... He was not planning ever to tell anybody what they had done. Not only was he forgiving them, he was protecting them. He, could, he was never allowing anybody to say, those, those are his brothers that sold him into slavery. He was not going to allow anybody to speak one word against his brothers. Not only was he forgiving them, he was protecting them, he was guarding them, he was making it easy for them to forgive himself. You, you, you meant it, it's all right, God had a plan in it, don't worry about it. He was making it easy for them to forgive themselves. He was not planning that anybody ever should ever criticize them. He was forgiving them totally, utterly, fully, completely. To which I comment, if Joseph was like that, don't you think Jesus will be like that? If Joseph wanted those brothers released, back in fellowship, back in harmony with him, their brother, don't you think that Jesus is the same? He wants you in fellowship. He wants you back. 
He won't even betray you to anybody. He won't even tell anybody. You you deal with it now, he he won't even mention it in Judgment Day. If he does, he'll put everybody out first. No, no, Jesus is our great Joseph. And he loves us. If we walk in the light, if we come to see what we did, if we confess such sins as God is dealing with, with now, God is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins, we'll have fellowship, and we'll be able to go on working out our salvation, having fellowship with the Father, having fellowship with the Son, being put in the plans of God, finding out God's will for our lives. We'll walk through life in fellowship with the Father and the Son, fellowship given by the Holy Spirit with the Father and with the Son. And that's how we will live. And we will find peace, we will find happiness, We will find joy. I'm writing to you that your joy might be full. I'm writing to you that you might have fellowship. If only we live this way, our joy will be full. I'm writing these things that uh, your joy may be complete. You will have fullness of joy if you walk through life in fellowship with the Father and with the Son. That's how we work out our salvation. That's how we achieve the next stage in our salvation by walking and living in fellowship with the Father, in fellowship with the Son, practicing the disciplines of the Christian life, finding our calling, moving forward with God. And even before we get to heaven, we'll hear Jesus saying to us, well done, good and faithful servant. He'll commend us, we'll feel good, we'll feel clean, we'll feel happy, because we're walking in fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Let's stand and let's pray together as we close. Father, we thank you for these amazing things in your word. I pray this afternoon that we may be able to take them and apply them and meditate upon them and go over them until we know that these things are true, until we see it in the power of your Holy Spirit, until we confess our sins, until we walk in the light and know such fellowship, such cleansing from all unrighteousness. Help us to know that these things are for us, They're for everybody, they're for the whole world, including us, including me, including everybody else. Teach teach us these things and grant us fellowship here in this place, in this church, in this weekend, and every day of our lives, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you.